November when we go to the polls. No, in this election and every election, it's about who will have the power to shape our children for the next four or eight years of their lives. <clears throat> Welcome back to Manny's Live. My name is Manny Kutiel, and you are tuning in to Manny's Live here on the corner of 16th and Valencia. What's Manny's, you ask? Manny's is a physical civic gathering space in the Mission District in San Francisco. And for almost two years, we've been gathering people together right here to engage in politics, social justice, and the issues of our day. And we've moved our incredible programming onto the internet to go right to you at home. So a couple things before we start. One, I want to acknowledge that the land that we're on right now is Ohlone land. And so we want to acknowledge that this land was taken and we're honored to be doing this programming uh, tonight on Ohlone land. We wanted to acknowledge it. Also, it's Pride Month. So happy Pride Month to everyone. Um, and hope that this Pride year and this Pride Month be especially important to us and to not forget that Black Lives Matter and we want to remember that this weekend especially as we all think about what Pride means to us. So now, to tonight's episode, we're going to show you a little video about what tonight is all about. Thank you so much. For years, DACA recipients have lived with instability following the Trump's administration's repeated attacks to end the program, placing their livelihoods, careers, and families at stake over to fulfill a political agenda. On June 18th, the highest court of the land ruled in favor of DACA, defying Trump's vicious promises to end the program. Over 700,000 individuals reveled in relief and victory. The landmark SCOTUS decision defined the lives and futures of those individuals who were reassured that home is here. All right, and welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited to be able to introduce two people who I know and love, good friends of mine, and also tireless advocates um, on this issue of immigration reform. So first, we have Eduardo Garcia, and I'm going to let you tell folks a little bit about what you do and who you are in a second. And then we have Jupiter Peraza, who's an incredible, incredible community leader and activist and DACA recipient herself. Um, so first, I just wanted to ground this in the personal and the kind of who we have here in front of us speaking today. Uh, and let's start with you, Eduardo. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you got to this issue and your journey to it and a little bit about what you do? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Emmanuel, for hosting this space. Um, Emmanuel, so yes. huh? No one's yes, called me Emmanuel. Emmanuel Manny, <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> you knew me as Emmanuel. Yes, originally. Emmanuel, yes. Um, so yeah, I am from Southern California. I'm from Orange County, Anaheim specifically. My family's from Mexico. And so, yeah, I grew up in a home of immigrants, right, from central Mexico. They came here in the 80s um, in pursuit of opportunities for themselves and um, to, to help their families in Mexico economically. And so I, um, I always grew up with those values, right, of, for immigrant rights specifically because I saw how much they struggle to adapt to the society that we're living in, which we know has not always been um, pro-immigrant mm. um, and still struggles with that actually and so I, I very much grew up informed by those values um, so I've been working in immigration advocacy for over 10 years now Wow yeah and I got started because in the late um, around 2007 2008 
ICE, as we know it, as we all know what ICE is now, right? right. Immigration Customs Enforcement was having a strong presence in my county, in my hometown. And so you could sometimes walk into a 7-Eleven or you could walk into, you know, a department store and you could, there was, um, sometimes there were like ice, their cars, right, parked outside or they, they became a presence in our community and we would see it on the news and it went as far as um, they showed up where my mom worked. Um, really? One, one year in particular. Yeah, um, looking for folks, right? They would conduct raids um, looking for folks and with, with the goal of deporting people, right? That was the project that ICE, that's their mission, right? Is to remove folks from this country. And so at the time I was a teenager, I was in my, I was in my late teens, I was about to start college. At the time my mom wasn't documented, right? Many of my family members are still undocumented today. And so I felt a responsibility to engage on this issue, right? Using the values that my family instilled in me using my privileges to, to fight for a more just community. And so that's how I started getting involved almost, yeah, like 12 or 13 years ago. Um, and currently I continue to work on immigrants' rights issues. Um, I was fortunate enough to be in Washington, D.C. Um, for the DREAM Act fight in 2010, which I was, remember. oh my gosh, feels so long ago yeah, now. Yeah, a decade ago. Yeah, and I was able to be there as well. Um, for the advocacy that took place for DACA, right? One, I was like one little piece of, as in you know, a community of activists that was pushing for reforms, um, but that was pushing for calling on the Obama administration to stop deporting folks. And so that's a little bit about my background. Yeah, I'm so inspired by you, and I have been so inspired by you for so long. Uh, and it's amazing to, it's it was it's amazing to see to have first met you and also just to see how much you've grown in this movement and what a leadership role you've played. So you're incredible and I can't yeah. wait to talk to you more about what the Supreme Court ruling means and, and what's next and what it means for all of us. So thank, thank you, Eduardo, really appreciate it. Jupiter. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, I feel like <laughs> I've spent the whole day with you. Uh, me too, because we have. Yes, because we have. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if you don't mind telling folks kind of like, what has your journey been to this particular issue? Yeah. Um, and kind of, you know, why why does it matter to you? And a little bit about your story, if you don't mind. Yeah, so um, I, myself as well, I also grew up in Southern California, L.A., to be exact. Um, I came to the United States when I was seven years old. Um, it was just me, my mom, and my dad. And we resided in this little city in L.A. called Paramount. I don't know if you've heard of it. I do know where that is. Yeah. Okay. A Paramount um, Swap Meet. Paramount Swap Meet, that's a really good one. Um, <laughs> and you know, I, I, I went to school. I went to elementary school, middle school, um, high school. Uh, but it wasn't until high school when I started applying for college that I realized that my situation was a little unique than that of my classmates. And you know, at the time, I was in junior, junior year, 2014. Yeah, junior year, 2014. Um, and you know, I was just, I was in, in um, AP classes. Mm -hmm. uh, that was just something that I did because um, I cared very much about my education. And from very early on, um, I made sure that I was enrolled in all the AP classes that were offered on campus. And you know, um, around my junior year, that's, that was when my classmates and, and everybody else were starting to think about college. And the conversation about college was very prominent. And, you know, everybody would talk about, I am applying to this university, I am applying to this 
university. These are my plans after high school. And you know, to me, I never really thought about it. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to go with the flow because if all my classmates are talking about college and enrolling in college, so am I. Uh, but it wasn't until I had that conversation with my parents, with my mom about college and what that meant. Um, and it was then that I realized that I did not have uh, the privileges to go on to college the same way that my classmates did. You know, I didn't think about it too much. Um, I went on, you know, with the year. Um, and it wasn't until one day my mom brought up uh, this, you know, little program called DACA, yeah. uh, which, uh, you know, at the time, you know, President Obama had signed into um, effect. And um, I didn't really know what it was. I just knew that my mom was uh, talking about it and she had heard from her other friends who'd also had children that were undocumented. And, you know, me being an, um, a first-generation undocumented uh, student, I decided to apply for DACA. And, you know, at first, it was very suspicious. They'd asked for so many information, mm -hmm. for so much information uh, from, you know, f where I lived, where I came from, uh, my address, you know, my mom's, uh, you know, uh, history. So um, I applied and I, you know, took, um, I took a leap of faith and I got DACA and suddenly I started enrolling in, um, in college and I got all these um, uh, letters that were asking for me to enroll. And, you know, then I thought that um, I was set. I was, I, I, I had been given an, uh, an opportunity to enroll in college and uh, pursue higher education. But that took a turn once Trump ran for office. Mm -hmm. And at the very beginning, he was campaigning for, uh, you know, a plan for DACA recipients and how he wanted to take care of us. Uh, that, of course, changed in September of 2017 when he repealed DACA. And at that time, when DACA was repealed, I woke up and I heard the news. It was the worst day of my life. Mm -hmm. I, I just didn't know what to make of it. I was so scared. Um, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't go to school. I didn't go to work. Um, I took the next. I took the next few days to think about what that meant and what that meant for my future. And you know, um, I struggled for some months trying to figure out what I wanted to do and you know how I wanted to make my voice heard. Uh, and then suddenly, um, I encountered this little place called Manny's. Have you heard of it? Okay. Yeah, it's like... Um, Emmanuel's? Okay. Yeah, Manny's. It's on the corner of 16th and Valencia. It's this really beautiful place, really cool. Um, and then I started working there, and I got the wonderful opportunity to get involved and to have my voice heard, and it provided me a platform that not a lot of DACA recipients had. Uh, you know, we can't vote, uh, but... You know, somewhere or another, we have to um, take a stand. And it was through this platform that I learned that, you know, my voice carried weight. And this is where it started, and this is why I care so much, and this is why I continue to, uh, you know, get up every day and, you know, share my journey and how everything is possible and how we can do more. I love it. Yeah. Well, we're, and thank you for sharing your story. And of, of course. course, you know, we want to continue and, and get to where we are today. But um, we are here in a spirit of celebration, which we don't often get to say. We don't often get to feel joyous about the state of our politics very often. Um, but we do get to be happy about what happened last week a rare glimmer of hope and light. 
uh, from the Supreme Court case and the ruling that came down last week, of course, um, on DACA. But before we get to the Supreme Court case and before we get to exactly what happened, Eddie, can you take us back a little bit and tell us about kind of how we got here from an activist framework, kind of what were the steps that got us to last week? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I think when I think about the victory of last week, right, with the Supreme Court um, basically upholding DACA, I think about all of the youth activists, right, all the undocumented young activists, many of which were queer, many of which, you know, were coming from all parts of the country, right? Um, I think about all the work that they did in since 10 years ago, really, right? right? 10, 12 years ago um, to lay the groundwork for this moment, right? So when people say, yes, obviously the Supreme Court delivered this decision and it's a decision that's gonna impact the lives of hundreds and thousands of folks, but it would not have been possible without the activism of young people, right? Of undocumented young people that really led the way. Um, so I, I think a good place to start is with the DREAM Act in 2010, right? I still remember being in Washington, D.C. with other advocates, lobbying Congress on the DREAM Act, right? The, for those of you that don't know, the DREAM Act is a yeah. piece of legislation that would have provided undocumented young people with a pathway to citizenship, right? It passed in the House of Representatives under Nancy Pelosi's leadership. But unfortunately, in December of 2010, it fell short five votes in the Senate. What did that day feel like for you? That day was very difficult. I think actually maybe you were in the city at that time as well. Yeah. Um, it was difficult because I think it, for, for a lot of m members of this community, right, um, it, it meant that we had to find together collectively a way to move forward, right? I think for a lot of families that are I think that folks forget that under the Obama administration, unfortunately, it's very, it's very sad to say, but there were three million people deported under the mm -hmm. Obama administration, right? Um, Almost hard to imagine what three million people looks like, but that is so many people whose lives were torn asunder. Yes, but I also want to make, I also just want to be clear that after the DREAM Act was essentially stalled in the Congress, right? Uh, it was inspiring to see that young people were not letting themselves be discouraged. Um, so when the broader immigrant rights organizations continued fighting for a comprehensive immigration reform, I think young people really had the pulse on what the community really wanted, which was a halt to deportations, right? Three million deportations under the Obama administration. Um, I think folks just wanted some relief and some opportunity to to be in this country without fear, right? The country, the only country that a lot of these young people had ever known. And so their strategy was to pressure the Obama administration to act, right? Um, and it's interesting because I can remember at this time, you know, uh, being able to lobby Congress and lobby the White House, they, kept, they said no, you know? When you, when you asked them to do these things, they said no. They said, we Why? don't have the legal authority to do so, right? They said, Obama's not a king. That's what they would say, right? Obama's not a king. It has to happen through Congress. Huh. But we all know, I mean, if you've, been, if, you've been watch, if you've been paying attention to politics for the last 10 years, 
very little gets done in Congress, right? Unfortunately, it's mm -hmm. very dysfunctional right now. Mm -hmm. And so, but young people were smarter than that, right? They mm -hmm. knew that this was, they were gonna have to continue pushing forward to make sure that Obama could act and do something in their favor. And so eventually, after years of pressure, after years of um, following him on his re-election campaign in 2012, right? They were blocking streets, they were, you know, following him at all of his events. They were staging protests at his offices across the country, his campaign offices, right? And there was a large presence outside the White House for a long time, wasn't there? There was, yes. Every day there was a protest, right? Ca trying to bring attention to this issue because I think, I know that, you know, folks, I, I, Obama did a lot, of, a lot of wonderful things for this country, right? Um, but I think sometimes progressives forgot that he wasn't perfect on all of the issues. And immigration was one of those issues where yeah. there needed to be a lot more done for this community. And so eventually after years of pressure and criticism mm. from the broader immigrant rights community, right, saying, you're not doing it the right, the right way. You, you're being too aggressive. You know, you're, you're asking for too much. Um, the pressure should be on Congress and not the president, right? Um, young people insisted on moving forward anyway, and they won in June of 2012 when this decision was announced mm -hmm. by the Obama administration after years of saying that they couldn't do it, right? And so I think that's something that's really important to remember now, especially with what we're seeing with Black Lives Matter and what we're seeing with activism that's being led by young people, mm -hmm. right? When authorities, when politicians, when they say it's not possible, I think it's important to to remember this victory in particular and mm. remember that we can that young people have always kind of pushed the envelope on what's possible and we should be listening to them. Oh, I just want to let that sink in for a second because I feel beautiful. like it reminds me of all the work that's been done to mm -hmm. get to this point by people like you Eduardo and of course you as well Jupiter and all the like the organizations and the coalition building and I'm sure the thousands of coordinating calls that have happened to get people on the same page, the same messaging. Yeah. So let's get to today, um, or not today, but last week. But do you remember what it was like, the moment where you found out about the, the Supreme Court ruling and kind of what was the first reaction and then what's, what was the first thing that you did after that? Yes, yeah, so, oh, I remember very vividly, I was asleep. Um, it was around 7 a.m. and I hear this um, ring, and it's my phone ringing. And I set, um, I set my my um, my tone to uh, a unique tone depending on who it is. Uh -oh. And that tone was for Manny. Uh, so it was 7 a.m. What's I get my a, tone? It, it's a very classic, you know, very um, elegant <laughs> like phone ring. Okay, um, all and right. I was like Manny. Uh, so, you know, I pick up the phone, uh, not knowing what it was. It probably, you know, was something related to work, something that I forgot, something that I didn't do. Um, but Manny <laughs> just says, um, the DACA decision is out. And there was like a, a short um, moment of silence. And I hear, um, I hear the joy lingering in, in his voice. And for a moment, I, you know, I came to the conclusion that it, it had, you know, it had, um, it had stayed, DACA was staying. And I remember f feeling a sense of relief and joy 
you know, for for years, for you know, for almost four years to be exact, for the entire um, uh, Trump administration, I lived with the uncertainty and went to, with the possibility that you know, from one day to the next, my protection uh, for uh, deportation could be uh, taken away, and mm. my life would suddenly come um, um, come into disarray. And that's what I felt that day. That's what I felt that morning. And I remember that morning so vividly. The, sh the sun was shining through my window. I, I, could, I could take a deep breath and not know that I was anticipating a decision that could potentially change my life forever. And I also remember feeling a fire at the pit of my stomach. And, you know, this was a fire that was giving me hope, you know, a couple of days before, th um, there was also a decision on um, mm -hmm. LGBT protections right. in the workplace. And coming off from that victory to this one, it was just, uh, it was a sense of relief. And for these four years, they've been dark. Mm. We've been surrounded by so much darkness. And with this decision, with these two decisions back to back, uh, it was like I was seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. And that is what I still feel today. Um, and, you know, I am so excited to get to work for the November election. There's just so much to do. Yes, and we have such little time to do it. Such little time. How, uh, four, less five than, months? Oh, about less than five months. Less than five months. Yeah, until it's yeah. over. Well, until this election's over. Until this election is over. And so I remember you and I also speaking, Jupiter, in the weeks leading up to the decision about how much it weighed on you, specifically knowing that it was close and it was coming and it was coming and it was coming. Can you talk a little bit about those few weeks leading up to the decision and what it felt like? Yeah, you know, um, I've been talking to my other DACA recipient friends, and we were just talking about, um, you know, none of my friends um, probably... Um, Nobody that's a DACA recipient would ever say to you, I'm giving up. This is not, you know, I'm putting, I'm throwing my hands up in the air. I'll let the government take it from here. No, mm -hmm. I, I don't feel like that is not the spirit. So I also, um, I was making plans as to what I was going to do next. Um, the last thing that I was going to do was give up. That is just not in me. And I've worked so hard these years that I've been in the United States, a place that I call home mm -hmm. because it is my home. And I just, um, I felt a sense of responsibility of defending the right that I had to be home and to call a place home that it's the only place that I know. Um, you know, and this time around from uh, September in 2017 when I was feeling really scared and very anxious and uh, you know that that was a very uh, dark moment for me um, that decision weighed really heavily on me but this time around I I'm not I wasn't scared mm. I love that defend your uh, right and responsibility to call this place home yeah and I think that's so beautifully put what about you friend what was that moment like, that, the moment where you found out about the decision? So, again, an issue you've been working on for over a decade. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we got some good news. So what was that moment like? Where were you when you found out? And what was your first thought? Yeah, I, was, I found out on Twitter. Uh huh. So I was just scrolling and just scrolling updating. on Twitter. Okay. I think a, I think a lot of folks had expected that a decision would come down on Thursday. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, yeah, I was... Um, I had I'd spoken to many friends in the weeks prior 
right? Because we waited for weeks for the decision to yeah. come out. Right. Um, it was unclear when it would when it would be public, um, and so I had been communicating with friends and talking about, um, you know, what the next steps would be. Right. Already kind of planning for the worst. Yeah. So when I, you know, came across the news, I was honestly in disbelief. Like right. I couldn't believe that. Especially after yeah. what happened um, a few days prior, right, with Definitely. the decision that came out around LGBTQ workers. Um, and so for me, it was, I think, you know, to the point that I was making earlier, it's just, it's just a reminder of the power of community organizing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to frame this victory as something that was given to us um, and given to the broader immigrant rights community. I think it's something that this community has worked for. And I think it's a place that we can continue building off of. Mm -hmm. And I hope that people will see um, this and feel inspired to mm. continue building. Because at this point, I mean, DACA recipients are just a small population of the broader undocumented community in this yes. country that still don't have any relief. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and deportations continue. Mm -hmm. And so we, we still have a lot of work to do to make sure that all of our community members are protected and that they're able to be in this country and continue provide you know continue providing for themselves and for their families this know? decision was not given to us but it was something that was fought for uh, for years and years and years by mm -hmm. a very large coalition of activists and advocates so what does the decision actually say? I mean, what does it mean for DACA recipients? Is it, you know, are we done here? Mm. Like, anyone that has DACA doesn't have to worry about their status anymore? Or, um, you know, it, was the judgment very limited? Was it very broad? Kind of, what does, this, what, what does this, this judgment and this order actually mean for the people like Jupiter who have DACA status uh, mm -hmm. for their future? Either of you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, um, I was reading over uh, um, the opinion uh, today that came that came um, out last week, and you know, I was reading the basis of the decision. And uh, Chief Justice John, John Roberts, he he mentioned that the reason why they had uh, taken this decision because the decision was five to four. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he was the one that pretty much decided the fate of over 700,000 individuals. Mm. Um, and you know, as I was reading, he mentioned that the reason why he decided to um, opt for uh, not taking away DACA was because uh, there was no basis to Trump's argument as to why he wanted to take DACA away. It just didn't make sense. It was very arbitrary. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it is a you know it is a huge um, victory for us. But also, as Eduardo said, uh, us DACA recipients are very small, a very small fraction of immigrants in a very uh, vast. Um, uh, group of immigrants here in the United States, mm. but I definitely believe that what what came out of this decision was the willingness that we um, that we have to keep on going mm -hmm. and we have to keep on fighting. I remember vividly um, uh, in last November when the Supreme Court heard arguments for DACA. I remember uh, when the DACA recipients were coming out of the Supreme Court and they were coming down the steps. And there's this video uh, of people chanting outside, home is here. 
um, as they were um, descending um, uh, from mm. the steps. And just seeing that video in November gave me chills. Mm. And every time that I would think of DACA, I would hear the chants in my head. Home is here. Home is here. Mm -hmm. And um, with what this decision meant is I, I still hear those chants in my head that um, home is here. And I definitely believe that this is also an opportunity to, um, to continue getting involved. Uh, and this is not the end. You know, uh, this is a victory of a journey filled with many more victories. We hope, uh, yes. We hope, of course. And, you know, these last four years, victories have been very scarce. Mm -hmm. So on that, I think we actually have a little video from a DACA recipient who is going to tell you, this is an excerpt from a video that was submitted today from a DACA recipient about uh, what this decision means to them. So let's go ahead and roll a little video that we have. My name is Aureliano Davila, and I go by Ari as well. I am undocumented, and I am unafraid. Having DACA gives me deferred action or a deferral status on any removal proceedings that I may have. And essentially it protects me from deportation. Now this is a personal anxiety of mine that is relieved, but in regards to my family, since I do come from a mixed legal status family, it's frustrating because I don't get to see that same protection for them. Thank you so much, and thank you so much um, to the DACA recipient that submitted that video and for, um, and for being bold and courageous and bearing um, their soul for us. This is a very personal issue, obviously. Uh, I'm the son of immigrants. My father's an immigrant from Afghanistan. Uh, my mother is from Brooklyn, so she's not an immigrant, though sometimes can feel like it. Um, and, I, and I think it's, it's one of those things that a lot of people don't often feel comfortable talking about. And I know that your work as an immigration reform activist for so long, you've had to tell your story and your family's story so much. Are you, it's a victory. It's a victory. Yes. But how comfortable do you feel with this victory? I mean, how confident are you that DACA recipients don't need to worry about their status in the future? Yeah, I think, um I think this is a reminder of, for me, it's a reminder that there's more work to be done, right, for the broader immigrant rights community. Like, we all have family members that might be in this country without status. And so my hope is that, you know, as I mentioned before, folks that are watching what's happening, that they'll feel inspired to be a part of this movement. And I think that's why it's so important to tell that story, right, of what it took for us to have this victory. It didn't happen out of the kindness of anyone's heart, mm -hmm. right? Just like Obama didn't grant DACA out of the kindness of his heart. There were activists that were pushing him for years to, to achieve this win. And even after DACA, after DACA recipients won, right? Even after DACA was won, they, went, uh, they embarked on a campaign to try to get the administration to act for their parents, mm -hmm. right? Um, unfortunately, that was unsuccessful. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that. DAPA. Yeah, DAPA, exactly. Yeah, DAPA. Exactly. Wow, it's been a while since 
God, it just feels like anything that happened before 2016, it's just like there's this dark wall that just, I'm like, there was a whole world and movement yes. before that. But I feel like when this is all over, it'll be like a four-month, four-year blackout period that I'm probably going to forget. But yes, DAPA, I forgot about DAPA. Yeah, that was in 2014, 2015, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that was the next step, right? Yes. And DACA folks were were not just thinking about themselves, right? They were thinking about their parents right. and, and wanting to honor the fact that their parents also needed protection from deportation. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a victory, but my inner activist is, right. you know, this is just a chip from a bigger, you know, and a bigger piece, right? Um, it's just one part of a broader fight to making sure that our communities are, are safe from deportation and they have a, a road towards uh, US citizenship yes. so that they're able to be here in this country. Um, so before we get into the nitty gritty of what might happen and executive order versus congressional action and, mm -hmm. and what's next, can we just take a step back? And this might seem very base level to both of you, but I think it's important that we, that I ask this question, that we actually talk about it and discuss it, which is, what is this obsession with the legal status of immigrants recently. It feels like recently 15, 20 years or so in American history. It just feels like there was comprehensive immigration reform. Last, last time it passed was passed by a Republican president. It just feels mm -hmm. like the, this rhetoric, feels like the rhetoric under anti-immigrant rhetoric under Obama was there but was not quite <clears throat> as virulent. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like there's been this obsession um, with specifically anti-Mexican and also you know, Central American immigration. And I want to ask you where it comes from. I want to ask you kind of, you know, what you think the kind of core nugget of it is, um, because I feel like it's invading into so much of our discourse. Yeah. Do you want to take this one? I can start if you, if you of want. Of course, yeah, let's yeah. do it. Um, I think that, I think that there's always been an anti-immigrant sentiment. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's, always been, um, you know, this has persisted in, in our country for a long time. Um, and I think that it's a tool that politicians often use to blame someone mm -hmm. for the society's broader problems, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think it's a, it's a tool, that, it's a strategy that I think this president has used um, to divide people mm. um, and to misinform people about the deeper inequities that exist in our country. It's easy to blame someone else than to take responsibility um, for those problems. And I think, um, I think that is at the core of it. Yeah, I remember going to, uh, going to get out the vote for Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. Mm. And I went to a home um, and I knocked on the door and it was a gay couple. And I thought, oh, I shouldn't even, you know, two men come out kind of embracing. And it's this home in the woods in New Hampshire. And I was kind of like, you know, I'm here with Hillary Clinton and just wanted to obviously, you know, check to, just to confirm that you're voting for Hillary Clinton and make sure that we have your vote. And, you know, kind of like wink, wink, nod, nod, like, you know, what a joke, why am I even asking this gay couple in New Hampshire? Mm. Um, but I'm like, make sure you know your polling place. And they're like, where is our polling place? And I was like, oh, actually, it's just a couple blocks down the left-hand side. They're like, there, I'm good. And I'm like, great, and I'm just confirming you're with Clinton. And they're like, oh, no, we're voting for Trump. I was like, you're voting for Trump? Why? And they said, we don't want the Mexicans taking our jobs. Mm. And I'm like, you guys live in New Hampshire. 
and you're a gay couple. I mean, what is, what is you, you think Mexicans are going to come here and take your jobs, and that's why you're voting for Donald Trump? And so it just kind of struck me as strange that it worked. I mean, mm -hmm. Donald Trump's using uh, Mexican immigration specifically and immigrants as a community, as a scapegoat, it worked. What do you think this is all about? Well, I also, I, I also very much agree with you both. Um, I think there is a lot of uh, racially charged history in the United States. And I do believe that, you know, as Donald Trump made use of that. He weaponized that sentiment that was so rampant in communities that, you know, we weren't a part of, of course. Um, but, you know, th it, it also showcased a lot of the xenophobia and a lot of the racist rhetoric in Trump's um, campaigning. You know, he, uh, he was saying how uh, DACA recipients, they were, we were um, criminals and, you know, we were invo um, involved in gangs and all of this nonsense, uh, first of all, Every time that we renew, we need to, mm. uh, we're subject to, um, you know, getting a background check, making sure that we have a clean record, making sure that, you know, we are uh, going to school, we have our jobs. Anyway, uh, but also that played into the larger narrative that Trump has been spouting all these four years that Mexicans are criminals mm. and they're part of gangs. You know, um, 700,000 of those individuals are from many other places that right. aren't Mexico. There are people from all over the world, uh, people from um, Africa, people from Asia, people from Europe. Mm -hmm. So that in itself was a very uh, dysfunctional argument because it made no sense. And he made use of that racial uh, sentiment that is still very prevalent until today. But you know, one thing that he that that he did was he 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 brought it out, and mm -hmm. it's exposed. Mm. It's out in the open, and we are forced to confront it head yeah. on and address those that those racist um, attitudes. I also think it has a lot to do with the demographics changing in this country. Mm. Right, we're becoming a more diverse country, yeah. a more diverse population. And that is a result of, it, it can be partially a result of immigration, but I think it's just a result of the different demographic trends that are taking place, right? Family planning, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so I think that there's op that creates a lot of tension in communities, mm -hmm. um, feeling like maybe something is being taken from them. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I also think it's important to, to make a note that the data shows that migration from Mexico is down. Yeah. It's been down for at least six years. Yeah. And so any, any sort of uh, argument that, that any politician uses um, referencing immigration as a problem is likely using it as a way to create divide among communities that are fearful for their jobs, right? That are fearful for, um, for their, their own well-being, economically speaking. But I think if you actually look underneath what's causing some of these problems, some of these economic problems, it has nothing to do with immigrants. Quite the opposite, right? If the DREAM Act, it's so funny, Donald Trump 
you know, supposedly is this businessman and understands numbers, but we all know that if the DREAM Act had been passed in 2010, mm -hmm. the CBO estimated that it would reduce this, the, the federal deficit by billions of dollars, add $10 billion of revenue to the federal budget over a 10-year period. I mean, it would have been totally net positive to the economy. And I kind of feel like we're going to look back on this time, and one of the greatest mistakes we've made as a country um, is how we have treated immigrant communities because immigrant communities have been the backbone and they have been the people who have built this country mm -hmm. from the ground up as we know mm -hmm. um, and it's embarrassing mm -hmm. and I for one can't wait to see the light again and hopefully this time when we have a democratic president in a couple months uh, we won't need to hold his feet to the fire quite so much mm -hmm. so let's go to where we go from here if we can we had a win like I said <laughs> but it's June, almost July, and an, an election is in November. And like Jupiter said, Justice Roberts' grounds for voting with the majority was not that he felt that the DACA program was lawful, but that the grounds of the Trump administration for wanting to end it was capricious. Yes. And that was not enough to end a program. So mm -hmm. are you too worried about a court case getting back to the Supreme Court between now and November? Could something happen during lame duck? Um, you know, the DHS interim secretary, Chad Kelly, no, Chad, Chad Wolf. Chad Wolf. Kelly was the previous one. Yes, she was. Yes. And, okay, and <laughs> Kelly Clarkson, Chad Michael Murray. Okay. So Chad Wolf said basically that they're going to agree with the, with the Supreme Court re ruling, but they're immediately going to work to uh, undo it. And Trump mm. tweeted two days ago, or two days after the case, that he was going mm. to file paperwork to get it back to the court. So are you worried, and what do you think is going to happen over the coming months? Mm. Um, first of all, I am worried. Um, however, from here to November, I don't think that the Trump campaign has the time or the resources to fight this uh, for now, or I hope so. So if, if, if we were to receive another blow, another attack, it would definitely be after the November election, if he were to be reelected, which we know that we are fighting hard for not to let it happen. Um, and the second question, which I, I'm blanking on. Just kind of, um, do you think something could happen in lame duck? Are you worried about maybe an executive order? I mean, what is the advocacy community saying might happen? Well, you know, uh, thank you. Um, I also was reading that there are many pending decisions for the Supreme Court mm. right now. So for Trump to be riling up the Supreme Court at this time, it is a, it is a very bad time. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, they are about to announce a decision, I'm, I'm not sure when, but in the upcoming weeks, about you know Trump's uh, tax returns. Right. Mm. Um, and also something on the Electoral College and religion and abortion. So, so for Trump to be Threading his ground with the Supreme Court right now is not the right decision. Mm. So I feel like he will have to accept this ruling because he has to. Um, uh, he tweeted the other day, does the Supreme Court hate me? <laughs> Which I think was very funny. Um, I did <laughs> laugh very much at that. He's such a child. Such a child. But I do believe that for now, I am confident in this decision. And I believe that we have a plan and we have a a strategy on what we need to do in the upcoming months um, and I am very hopeful that you know we are going to continue this um, so I'm excited. Nice. Ed Eduardo how do you feel? 
And what do you think, what's up his sleeve, this slippery president of ours? Yes. Well, you know, I try to not get too much in my head about what might happen, you know, because I think there's so much we can't control right now, right? We're still going through a global pandemic right. yes, we that we know is claiming the lives of more people of color than, any, than many communities, right? Um, I'm cons there's a lot of things that I'm concerned about right now for, the, um, for our immigrant community. Um, and so I think, I think this is an opportunity for us to continue just finding what those avenues are, right? What are the different avenues that we can go to to making sure that we that our community is okay, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that includes making sure that folks are registered to vote, right? This is going to be a very complicated election. We're going to have a vote by mail, mostly vote by mail um, process because we don't know what the rest of the year is going to look like with regards yeah. to this pandemic. We could see a significant spike in the next several months. We know that communities of color in particular don't really vote by mail, right? They prefer to go in person. They prefer to get the sticker, you know, have the whole process. Yeah. And so there's going to be a lot of work in the next several months to make sure that our communities are educated about how to turn out to vote. Mm. There's also the census. The census. I have census. to bring up the census. We can't forget the census. We cannot, we cannot forget That's the census. That's probably what you have came you to San Francisco to work on, right? Exactly. I, I have filled it out. Good. Have Everyone, you filled it out? If you haven't, um, not yet. Um, you haven't filled it out? It, so no. Me and my parents are going to do it together. My2020census.gov is the website to go to. Thank you. Um, at, it goes to, it, you have till October 31st to fill it out, right? Mm -hmm. And so by filling out the census form, we have, we can make sure that we have the resources that we need over the next 10 years. Mm. So that we're, if there's another major pandemic or if there's another emergency at the scale that we're currently experiencing and we, we can count on the federal dollars to make sure that we're mm. okay, right? Um, so register to vote. Register yes. to vote. Fill out your damn census. Fill out the census. Yeah. Fill out your census, mycensus2020.gov. Exactly. Executive order. Could he, could he do an executive order in a way that, you know, violated the Supreme Court ruling? I think that from, so to my understanding, he could try to move forward with an executive order, but it would be challenged. And so essentially it right. would just be, it would just stall. And right? so the, finally, the third thing, which seems like the most obvious is we need to remove the putts in chief, we right? Do. We need to beat him um, and we need to replace him with mm -hmm. someone who's not going to be this anti-immigrant, obviously. We do have a candidate. Mm -hmm. His name is Joe Biden. He is the presumptive nominee. And so do you feel like the Supreme Court ruling will um, activate uh, the immigrant community in an even bigger way, knowing that if Trump does win, that could uh, give him the time he needs to bring this back to the Supreme Court? Could this be uh, a catalyzing decision to get people to show up or mail in their ballot and vote, and is that a, is it going to be used that way? Yes, um, I think this this is a catalyst and uh, something that I forgot to mention to the previous question about um, our plan and what's next. Uh, you know, last year. Um, uh, June of 2019, the House of Representatives passed the bill, the American Dream and 
something act of 2019. I don't exactly mm -hmm. recall the name, uh, but they passed this bill that would pretty much uh, provide a path with its a pathway to citizenship to over two million undocumented uh, dreamers. Mm. And, you know, this bill was passed in the House of Representatives <clears throat> with flying colors. Um, however, it's it's sitting in my in Mitch McConnell's desk right mm. now. So mm. um, part of the plan in the upcoming months is to also invest our time and our energy to make sure that we flip the Senate because there are a lot of things at stake right now. Uh, we need to make sure that we keep the House. We need to make sure that we flip the Senate. And we need to make sure that we get putts out of... Um, the putts in chief. Putts in chief out of the Oval Office. So there are a lot of things at stake. And all of them are there. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we need to make sure... Like I myself, <clears throat> I am, I'm telling my friends, the, you know, my colleagues, my neighbors, whoever has the right to vote, whoever can go to the ballot and cast a vote to mm -hmm. uh, make sure that they make their voice heard, I am encouraging them. Mm -hmm. And I am providing them all this useful information that they can um, use to uh, cast the right vote mm. and to make sure that we do all of those things that I just mentioned. Mm. Hi. Yes. Yeah, I just hope that Manny, you will in the next several months conduct spaces like this that teach folks how to vote by mail. Right. I think yes. a lot of folks don't know how to do it. And so everyone in the state of California, I mean, Governor Newsom just announced this a couple weeks ago, everyone in the state is gonna get a uh, mail-in ballot, mm. right? So as soon as it gets to your house, as soon as it gets to your apartment, wherever you live, you know, you have to fill it out and you have to turn it in. The sooner the better. Mm. Um, because what we don't want to happen is we don't want folks to wait until the day of and wait hours in line, which we saw for the primary in March just a few months ago. It feels like a long time ago, but it was just a few months ago, right? Um, we don't want that to happen because we want to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to vote and that they're not putting themselves at risk right. to do so. Right. And so it's going to be really important to make sure that um, folks that watch your program are informed about how to vote by mail safely and well, to do it as soon as they get their ballot. Well, we definitely should do a program on that. Before we end, I did want to ask if you wanted the opportunity to talk a little bit about what we spoke about this morning. Um, I don't know if this is the right format or forum if you want to. Sure. Schools and community first. Do you want to talk about it, or do you want sure. to talk about it another time? We can talk about. We can talk about. I can why bring it up a, now. Why don't you just give a plug to the folks who are watching a little bit about what you're working on? It's so important. <clears throat> it's not directly connected to <laughs> DACA, but um, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to tell whoever's watching um, and whoever will watch, you know, future generations of watchers, um, <laughs> about the thing you're working on right now. Sure. So if you are feeling uninspired by what's at the top of the ticket um, this year. I know some progressives might be, and that's okay, um, at least in California, right? Um, there's a ballot initiative that Californians will be able to vote on mm -hmm. that will appear on the November ballot that essentially closes a tax loophole um, in California's code and would hold corporations accountable to paying their fair share of taxes. And so we're talking about major companies like Chevron, we're talking you know, Disney, like these big corporations, right, that are currently not paying their fair share of taxes yeah. on their industrial properties. Mm. And so if we win in November, right, there's a lot at stake in November, but if we win on this ballot initiative, it would generate $12 billion annually, and that money would go to schools, 
K through 12 schools, it would go to community colleges, and it would go to local services, right? So in case you all don't know, there's a $54 billion budget deficit in California right now caused by COVID-19. And so we need revenue. We need money to fund services that we all rely on because otherwise we're just gonna see cuts across programs, schools, will, funding for schools will be cut. And so this is another opportunity for us to fund what's important to us, right? Mm. We're talking about, we're having a lot of conversations as of late about funding. Where is money going? Where is it not going? And this is one way in which we can hold corporations, right? These large corporations accountable to their fair share of property taxes so that we can fund the things that are going to keep our state moving forward. So it's the Schools and Communities First initiative. Schools and Communities First initiative. And you want to vote yes on it. And you want to vote yes when it appears on the ballot in November. In November. Well, I want to thank both of you so much for your friendship, for your leadership, for your energy, your activism, um, and your presence here at Manny's tonight and in the movement. Um, and I, my, my wish and my blessing uh, for all of us is that we can close this chapter soon, this embarrassing, pimple of a chapter, the scar on our, on our founding creed where we forgot who we were and we forgot who, you know, how this country was founded. Obviously there's a mixed history of how it was founded, but it was also on, you know, immigrants came here um, and, and, and we all have our personal stories and connections to this issue, but it's time to close this chapter of the book and, and welcome people back. Uh, to our country full throttle and create a pathway to citizenship for the 14, 16 million people who are still living in the shadows in this country. Yes. So thank you, Jupiter Peraza. Thank you, Eduardo Garcia, so much. And for those of you who are, are tuning in right now, we've only just begun. Now it's your turn. We have the next piece of this, which is the break room. So if you haven't stayed for the break room, you've only heard half the episode. The next piece is to go to tinyurl.com slash Manny's Break Room. That's the link right over here where my fingers are pointing. It's, oh, other hand, this way. tinyurl.com slash Manny's Break Room. We even put it in big capital letters for you so you could not have any issues spelling it. <clears throat> when you go to the break room, which will be opening any minute, um, we will be there, and we're going to have a post-show conversation and discussion. Eduardo's going to be there, Jupiter's going to be there, Sam, our digital director, is going to be there, and we're all going to talk about what we just heard, what we learned, and also what we're going to do about it. So this is not just a talk show, it's not just an opportunity to listen. Now it's time for all of us to talk amongst ourselves, specifically you, and to make some commitments on how we're going to take action. So go to tinyurl.com slash Manny's Break Room. Please follow Follow us at Welcome to Manny's, that's at Welcome to Manny's on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. You can also join the Manny's Live Facebook group to continue the conversation. And finally, uh, I wanted to thank, actually second to finally, I want to thank Christian and Michael, Sam, Jupiter, 
and Ram on the Manny's team, and of course Eduardo is our guest, for making tonight possible. And on, in two days, on Thursday at 6 p.m., the next episode of Manny's Live will be an incredible conversation with two leaders in the queer nightlife world, Honey Mahogany and Grace Towers, on the future of queer gathering spaces, on the heels of one of the most memorable prides we probably will ever have. We're going to sit down and kiki and strategize on what the future of queer gathering spaces will be. So don't miss out. See you all in the break room, and thank you so much for tuning in to tonight's episode of Manny's Live.